Hello! Welcome back to Love and Friendship. Uh, once again, we have another incredibly ambitious day ahead of us. Uh, I was told when I was originally planning to teach the symposium in a single week, i.e. two classes, that I was out of my mind to try such a feat, and that is becoming very apparent as I'm sort of tracking everything that's going on here. Um, so yes, we are going to attempt to get through the symposium all in one week. Um, I'll try to cram into these lectures everything that we need to go over, uh, but there is a lot. Uh, we have to sort of get a baseline for just how ancient cultures did their business, as well as kind of be able to see what specifically Plato was doing here in this text. Um, the good news, though, is that Plato, like, even amongst Platonic dialogues, the symposium is extremely unique. Uh, most Platonic dialogues, when you read them, what you will find is Plato will pit Socrates, his former teacher, against some other Athenian citizen, maybe a few of them, and they will start talking about some major subject, whether it's piety, like in the Euthyphro, or whether or not virtue can be taught, like in the Mino, or death, like in the Phaedo, or beauty, like in the Phaedrus. They're just going to talk back and forth until they have a better understanding of whatever it is that they're talking about, and usually that will be characterized by Socrates asking all of the pointed questions and sort of guiding people towards a uh, cogent solution, where the other people in the conversation are just saying, Yes, Socrates, whatever you say, Socrates, I agree, Socrates, no, it would be wrong to think that, Socrates, like, just following along and basically just like dogging his heels for the entire conversation. Um, and you'll notice we will get a little bit of that, not in this section, but in the in the second half. Um, Agathon will get into a little bit of a side conversation with Socrates. Um, and then ironically enough, Socrates will actually take the other position when Diatima is giving him all of the answers and solutions about love, but that's anticipating. Suffice it to say that we're dealing with something very different and very unusual here. Um, rather than just giving us Socrates' perspective as sort of drawn out by his conversation with one of his interlocutors, here instead we see a wide variety of different perspectives on love. And they are at least initially presented as though they are even-handed, like everyone is getting at something important about love. Um, Socrates may have the dominant voice, he may have sort of the last word on the subject, although to, literally he does not in this dialogue. Um, in fact, his speech is second to last. He probably would have been last, but then Alcibiades shows up and messes everything up. Um, so what makes this especially useful for our purposes um, is that we are going to get a wide variety of different perspectives on love. We are going to get multiple attitudes sort of common and current among the ancient Greeks, um, which means, first and foremost, and most obviously, that we're not dealing with a unified perspective on love here. Like us, the Greeks see love as being multivalenced, having many different qualities, as you know, potentially being interpreted in different ways by different people. Um, it's not just one answer that we're being presented here. And I suspect that Plato is very is doing this very consciously, um, where most of the time, whatever Socrates says kind of goes for the dialogue, or, or at the very least, like, Plato will present a, a fairly strong case and then sort of, sort of shed 
doubt on it. Like, Socrates, you know, seems to be getting at something really good here, but maybe it's not entirely complete and we, the readers, are invited to sort of investigate more deeply. Here, there's not even that. It's literally just, here is this person's idea of love, and here is that person's idea of love, and here is this other person's idea of love. Let's just chuck them all in the same dialogue, and you can come to your own dang conclusions with some little bit of guidance. Um, what's more, the ambiguity is very obvious, even from the outset. Um, remember, like, again, in most Socratic dialogues, there is this sort of remove. Like, there's usually, you know, one person who is, like, remembering this dialogue and narrating it to the rest of us. Um, but this is not always consistent either. Sometimes we get it from this kind of third-person omniscient perspective, like in the Euthyphro, or it's being presented to us in the first person, like in the Lysis or the Republic, where, you know, the character seems to have participated in the dialogue and therefore can be considered a, a very reliable uh, narrator in these cases. But here, it's not removed just once, but twice. Um, the first characters we're introduced to are Apollodorus and some unnamed stranger on the road to Athens. And the stranger goes up to Apollodorus and is like, Hey, Apollodorus, I heard that you were at Socrates, or I heard that you were at Agathon's Symposium where Socrates held forth on the subject of love. Um, and Apollodorus is forced to say, No, I wasn't actually there. Like, whatever information you have about that party, it's apparently so wrong that I that you thought that I was there when I wasn't. In fact, I did hear the story from somebody who was there, namely Aristotemis, who just like was happening to walk by and Socrates picked him up and was like, hey, let's go to Agathon's together. And Aristotemis was like, sure, okay. Um, like we find out later that Aristotemis should have been invited and was kind of overlooked. But it means that we're getting this retold to us by an unreliable narrator presenting the case of himself a fairly unreliable narrator. Aristotemis is described as not having remembered the events perfectly and retelling it to Apollodorus imperfectly. So we're at the back end of a game of telephone here. Plato is very much emphasizing that we are in the darkest part of the woods. Um, like, in another Platonic dialogue, in the Republican, or in the Republic, not the Republican, good grief, um, in the Republic, Plato describes that there's, like, certain, certain significance to where we're getting our information from. Like, there are primary sources and there are secondary sources. And he stresses that, like, the ideal forms are what we are always searching for. They are the source of all knowledge and all wisdom. Um, and therefore, like, when we see things that possess these forms, when we see beautiful things as opposed to capital B, beauty, when we see good things as opposed to capital G, good, um, what we are seeing is sort of like a pale shadow. But what's more, when we see these things presented as art, like if we see a picture of a horse instead of a horse, then not only are we removed from whatever ideal forms the horse participates in, we are also removed from the horse itself. Plato is very much emphasizing the remove here. We are not going to see capital L love. We are not even going to see love as it was presented by the luminaries of the time, Socrates and Agathon, Pausanias, Eryximachus. Like, we're seeing a poor interpretation of a poor interpretation of a, like, speculative discussion about love. 
So, you know, all the things that I've been emphasizing so far in this class about how overwhelming it is to sort of approach this subject, how kind of vague and ill-defined the philosophical study of love is, I think Plato knows this from the outset. Like, as early as, you know, the philosophical dialogue itself, Plato was very aware that he was over his head, that we were in the weeds, um, that there isn't something concrete to be known about love, that we are dealing with vague abstractions here. Um, I think Plato knows this. Like, maybe I flatter myself to think that, uh, that Plato agrees with me on this subject, or maybe I'm just getting this perspective because Plato is doing so much work here to, to sort of emphasize love's distance from us. In any case, we should keep in mind throughout reading this dialogue that, yes, we're going to get these, these perspectives and they're going to be important, they're going to be insightful, but they're also going to be rigorously imperfect. Um, they are not straight from the horse's mouse, mouth, so to speak. These are not, like, primary sources. Um, they're a copy of a copy of a copy. Um, and as a result, like, we should recognize the fact that it is poorly communicated to us. Love is something we're never going to get much closer to. Um, now, a couple of things before we, like, dive into the actual speeches themselves. It's... One of the other things that really makes the symposium so interesting and sort of the subject of even greater study than most platonic dialogues uh, is that it actually gives us a pretty decent slice of life as far as like how the Greeks would go about their partying. Um, Greek parties, like the symposium here is literally like a translation for everybody drinking together. Um, the symposia were kind of one part social event, one part celebration, and one part, like, religious festival. Um, to sort of set the stage here, because it actually is kind of relevant to the conversation that's going on, um, at a symposium, uh, you and your pals would all get together, um, and you would sit in their mains, like, main sitting area, their, their main room, um, and you would have these couches set up. Um, like, there's even quite a bit of political discussion about, like, who gets to sit on what's, what couch early on in the dialogue when, like, Agathon is inviting Socrates over to join him on his couch, and Eryximachus is even saying that, like, we're gonna, we're gonna do our speeches left to right, going around either the circle or the horseshoe or whatever it was. Either one of them was entirely possible in the ancient Greek society. Um, but even the way the couches work, like... To give you an idea, like, imagine that there's this big room, largely empty, probably some decorations and stuff, maybe some slave girls around, like, serving and, you know, possibly playing music. Like, you'll notice that at one point they even dismiss the pipe girl. Um, all these couches are s situated around this central area, like, s probably seven or nine of them. Um, most likely seven in this particular case, seeing as it seems to be a relatively small and intimate party as these things go. Uh, but notice, too, that the couches are also overloaded. Like, um, I think Aristotomus ends up hanging out with Eryximachus. Um, Socrates obviously hangs out with Agathon, and when Alcibiades shows up, he's going to, like, join the same couch, so now there's, like, three people to a couch. Um, the way that you used to hang out on these couches is you would, like, recline on your left arm, so you're lying on your side, 
Um, and then people are literally going to, like, serve food to you in this state. So you have your right arm, and you're going to, like, eat and drink and do all that with, with your right arm. Um, so you are sort of ideally situated for both comfort and relaxation, but also for talking to other people. And on top of that, you know, eating, drinking, whatever's going on. Um, now, notice, too, that they have a kind of discussion about, like, whether we're going to get into some serious drinking on this party. Um, like, this was actually a fairly important decision to be made. And notice that a lot of these folks, you know, they're like, can we just not do the serious drinking thing tonight? Like, I'm still hungover from last night's big festival and excitement. Um, apparently we're in the middle of, like, theater season. Um, I think it's Eric Simicus who mentions that, uh, like, the reason for this celebration, the reason why we're all gathering at Agathon's place is because he apparently just yesterday won the tragedy um which in greek society when you like went to went to the theater it was more than just like we went to see a movie um like this was a, a huge social event like all of you know all of upper class athens would have been there um but additionally it would have been a religious festival like the tragedy would have celebrated probably dionysus maybe apollo um like it, this would have been itself an act of worship um, and the festival afterwards, the symposium afterwards, is also dedicated to the gods. So you'll notice that, like, while Socrates is for some reason hanging out on somebody else's porch because he apparently got distracted with his deep thoughts or whatever, um, they actually have some ceremonial activities. Like, it mentions that they're pouring the libations. Um, this was typical. Like, you would fill up your, 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 um, glass goblet. I, there is a term I suddenly getting it um you would fill up your cup with wine and then you would pour out little bits of it in celebration to each of the gods and drink some of it as well so like you would basically like toast zeus pour out some wine for him and then toast like apollo or uh, any of the other gods that you were celebrating at this particular event um what's more like there are traditional drinking games and stuff that go along with this like it's again like all of this is bound up together for the greeks um and we had to sort of move into that mindset um, because in our culture, which is primarily secular, we tend to consider our activities to be kind of discreet. Um, like you don't combine getting boozed out of your mind and also going to the movies. You don't like sit in a theater getting wasted while also praying. Like. This is exactly how the Greeks would have seen it. Their lives were of a whole, of a piece. Um, celebration was worship, was artistic, was social. Like, all of these things would have been happening for all of these reasons simultaneously. Um, the Greeks played hard, in short. Um, and they played seriously, if that makes sense. Their play was an act of worship, was an act of serious sort of interpersonal uh, communication, an act of serious reverence to the gods. You would dedicate your play to Dionysus. You would dedicate your, you know, drinking festival to Dionysus. And the act of, you know, deciding, the fact that everybody gets together and agrees, okay, we're not going to, like, get wasted, is actually a sort of decision not to celebrate Dionysus on this trip, to not make this a formal symposium, but instead to make this sort of an informal celebration with another god in mind, namely in this case, love. Um, 
So keep that in mind, that, like, that's the sort of weird scenario we're in. We do have to sort of separate what's going on here from our own experience of how parties work. Um, this was, you know, it, it is kind of weird anyway that everyone's, like, at a party and they're like, hey, let's all just talk about love for a little while. Like, when was the last time that you went to a party where that was how we decided to do things? But if you're thinking drinking game, you're not wrong. And if you're thinking religious praying, you're not wrong. All of this would have been the same thing to the Greeks. Um, and, you know, this wouldn't have been abnormal. Like, it's certainly a little bit codified here. Like, Plato does, you know, formalize this, and everybody would see that this is kind of, like, a little bit contrived, but not terribly contrived. Um, not, like, out of the realm of possibility. This is not just for the purposes of doing philosophical dialogue. This is true to Greek experience, true to Greek life. Um... Now, in addition to talking about, like, how the party itself works, we also need to talk about how the Greeks and ancient cultures generally sort of functioned as social units. Uh, like, I kept talking in the Old Testament lecture, just because we did not have enough time, um, about sort of the, the fundamental dynamics between husbands and wives, between, you know, masters of the house and their servants, slaves, like, there's a lot of complex social dynamics here, and we really need to talk about this in order to properly understand what everybody is saying uh, when they're talking about love. Um, like, again, love is so bound up with interpersonal relationships, and our assumptions about interpersonal relationships are not shared by the ancient world. And there are a lot of things that the Greeks and the Hebrews would have had in common, and I want to talk about those things. And there are a lot of things that differentiate the two, that the Greeks have that are very distinct from the, the Hebrews, and we need to talk about them as well. So, again, like, there's so much we need to do. Um, first off, let's talk about home life in just pretty much the whole ancient world, and then we can get more narrowly discussing about the Greeks to, to begin with. Um or to sort of, like, conclude with. First and foremost, I need to absolutely stress, like, as we saw with Ruth and, you know, the, the story of Ruth, as well as some of the, the other relationships that we saw in the Old Testament readings, um, love and marriage were two very distinct entities in the ancient world. You did not marry because of love. Uh, like, sometimes it happened that way. Sometimes you fell in love with someone and you got to marry them, and it was awesome. Like, Orpheus is an example of this. He loved Eurydice, he got to marry Eurydice, everything kind of worked out for him, except for the fact that then she died and now he has to, like, stomp into Hades and try and get her back. Like, that's why the love story is as powerful as it is. Um, so this wasn't a foreign concept to the Greeks, this idea that love accompanied sexual relationships and could accompany marriage. But at the same time, marriage as an institution was very much an economic thing, not, a, not related to attraction or passion. Uh, most people got married out of convenience. And this was not like... People didn't, like, regret this. They didn't make their decisions to marry and then, like, grow bitter about it over time. Um, this was part of the process. So in, you know, the Old Testament world... Yes, men would marry a wife, usually like a, a woman, the daughter of a local lord or some other landowner who is very respectable and very important. And then this love relationship, this, this marriage, would end up being an alliance of sorts. Um, 
like, you know, when Abraham marries Sarah uh, back in the Old Testament, he does it largely so he can enjoy the benefits of being friends with another powerful family. Um, and this is normal. Like, you would often marry off your sons or your daughters to local, you know, local alliances and sort of forging bonds in order to protect yourself. Uh, because this is a dangerous place. Um, like, there aren't civilized societies hanging around. This is, I mean, there are cities, especially in ancient Greece, like the city-state was the central political unit, but they were small, and they were fairly, you know, dissociated from one another. You do get big centralized governments, like in Babylon, like in Egypt, um, but they are largely built around these kinds of relationships. Um, Pharaoh will marry you know, the daughters of important sort of allied states around Egypt, be it the Assyrians, or the Hittites, or the Canaanites, or the Hebrews, whatever, um, in order to, you know, guarantee mutual protection. Um, I'm not going to attack you because you have my daughter, or I'm not going to, or if somebody attacks you, I will come to your defense because um, your or your daughter is married to my son. Like, that's a very typical sort of relationship in the ancient world. Um, likewise, if you were trying to get in with somebody, if you wanted to join up with the ancient Egyptians, chances are the first thing you would do is marry some member of your family to some member of the pharaohs or some major lord in the area. Um, for the Hebrews, who aren't nearly as organized, this is as simple as, you know, you've got a lot of sheep, I've got a lot of sheep, our pasture land is right next to each other, we don't want to be fighting all the time, so let's be family instead. And then if somebody attacks us, we will both stand to each other's defense and protect one another. This is how fundamental economic arrangements work. It is a power thing, it is an economy thing, it is not a love thing, except insofar as alliances are conceived as an act of love. Friendly love, not erotic love, but love nonetheless. Now, if you're sitting here thinking, well, if, the, if everybody is just so convenient and everybody is marrying just for the sake of convenience, then it seems like it's not working because there are all these, you know, adulterous relationships and, you know, the, obviously, like, people are breaking up marriages. It's more complicated than that. For the Hebrews especially, you'll notice that there was a pretty decent acceptance of polygamy. Um, Abraham was a polygamist, like he sleeps with Sarah's handmaid, and while that causes some difficulties for everyone involved, it is socially acceptable. Sarah even tells him to do it. Um, likewise, Jacob absolutely marries both Leah and Rachel, the two daughters of the guy that he's working for. That's also hugely fraught and ends up leading to a whole bunch of com complexity. And in the end, like, Jacob ends up sleeping with not just the two wives, but also their handmaids. And he ends up having 12 kids and everybody's jealous of each other and it's incredibly complicated and political. That's fairly normal. Um, but notice that in a lot of the time, there's this outlet. If a man does marry purely out of convenience and ends up marrying somebody he doesn't care about, he will usually find some outlet for his sexual frustration. Um, he will also marry somebody who is just hot and who he just wants to sleep with. Or he'll sleep with one of his servants or one of his slaves. Um, in Greek society especially, it is totally normal for the lord of a household um, to marry for the sake of convenience, for the sake of economic security, and specifically have legitimate sons and daughters from that relationship that further serve to unify the two families. But he's also going to have like a half dozen concubines. 
Um, even the suggestion that is presented here that, like, the they dismiss the pipe girl, usually when you have, like, flute girls or, you know, serving wenches hanging around your, your party, they are in service to your guests in more ways than one. Um, usually they are up for a roll in the hay. And in fact, it is actually sort of considered uh, hospitality on the part of your host to provide women for your guests to sleep with. Like, this is ancient Greece. In many cases, if you are visiting somebody else's house, you're probably going to be there for a while. Um, like, in the case of the symposium here, it's obvious that all these guys are local. They all come from, you know, fairly close in Athens. But they're still walking from estate to estate. And estates are large. Like, in order to be able to be a profitable estate, that means you've got tons of farmland, tons of servants taking care of the land, probably some, like, head servant who's, like, watching over large groups of servants. Like, all of that is, you know, you are basically your own little nation-state. Um, but, and the lord of this estate is functionally a king of probably hundreds of people at the end of the day. Um, and each of these city-states is basically composed of dozens of these little estates, each with, you know, tons of servants, tons of people taking care of the facilities, you know, women who are taking care of the household and men who are taking care of the fields. Like, all of that is part and parcel of what it means to be a landowner. Um, so... Among these many servants, you're going to have some people who are reserved for sexual pleasure, or some people who you'll just take for sexual pleasure. Um, like, if you are, in fact, the lord of your household, and you, you know, fancy one of the one of the women working in the fields, or for that matter, one of the men working in the fields, chances are it's totally socially acceptable for you to do that. Um, and maybe even beget a bastard or two in the process. Now, this is not entirely socially acceptable. This would kind of be considered beneath you, and people would sort of, like, talk about you behind your back. Um, but it's your right. Like, if you've got a concubine, you probably have her in order to sleep with her. And it's pretty typical that an Athenian lord going out to war will capture slave women and then sleep with them at their discretion. Now... Not to put too fine a point on this, but if you're sitting there thinking, well, that's rape, yes. Yes, it is. But it's, again, more complicated than this. The relationship here is, once again, one of protection. Like, the Hebrews, too, typically had a policy of being able to capture concubines, slave women, for the men folk to sleep with. This is not, look, like, overlooked in the whole business of the Old Testament. And in fact, when God says, thou shalt not commit adultery, he's not talking about these relationships. When he says adultery, he's talking about sleeping with another man's wife, i.e. another person who is married. A man is generally assumed to be able to have sex outside of the marital relationship, and if you're thinking that's not fair, yes, let's we're getting to that too. Um, it is not considered rape in the ancient world because if you are in fact taking a slave girl, making her your concubine, captured her from her family or whatever when you took over their town, you are also obligated to offer protection to that woman. Um, like you enjoy her sexual favors for sure, she in turn enjoys your social and economic protection. Um, if, you know, your town is attacked, you will fight for her just like for your land, for your sons, for your daughters, for your wife, for the rest of the town, for everybody else. That's how society works at this point in time. And 
as much as this may sound hideous and abhorrent to our modern sensibilities, it kind of works. Like, again, everybody is sort of bumping up against each other. You know, the Greeks are constantly afraid that they're going to be attacked by other city-states or by tyrants like the Persians or, you know, foreigners in that sense. Um, even in ancient Rome, you know, people are worried about barbarian invasions as, as sort of stable as that society uh, is at its height. Um, in the ancient world, being under attack was just a state of being. And women could not protect themselves unless they had some man looking over their shoulder, looking out for them, providing them with food, with money, with force of arms, whatever was needed under the circumstances. So as much as we might, you know, blow the whistle and say, that's rape, it really wasn't. It was consensual, in a sense. Um, yes, you did not want to get carried off from your home as, you know, the daughter of a, of a significant lord. You probably had better prospects back when you were, you know, looking forward to marrying the neighbor, the neighboring household and therefore, you know, forming an alliance and being protected in your own right. But if you do, in fact, get carried off, the best possible scenario for you as a, you know, as a woman having been captured in battle is you're going to try and have sex with the Lord because if you can sort of get him on your side, he will treat you well and give you favors. Yes, this is a shitty situation. I'm not going to deny this. But this is the reality of the ancient world. And as much as we in our contemporary culture are sort of inclined to judge them for just sort of the assumptions of the world at large, I advise you as we are going through this to withhold your judgment as much as possible. Um, Plato is not making a statement about how slavery is good or concubines are awesome. He is observing what is going on around us, and he is not judgmental because this is normal to him. Chances are, if he saw our society, he would think it's a freaking mess for the same reasons as you think his society is a freaking mess. Um, Plato, hopefully, would have the good graces not to judge us and be like, hey, you do your thing, you may be a bunch of crazy barbarians with all this, you know, non-economic interests and marrying for love of women. Weird. Um, but that's, again, because we're just so far removed. Plato did not see women as having the same capacities as we see now. So it isn't abnormal for him to say, yes, women are functionally subservient by their very nature. Likewise, for the Hebrews, that whole Adam and Eve story, as much as we're sort of, you know, horrified at the punishment that God lays down, where, you know, now, Eve, you will always be subservient to your husband, that's not how the Hebrews would have seen it. They would have seen it as an explanation for something that is manifestly the case. Like, you could walk for a mile in any direction and see tons of evidence that women are supposed to be, by their very nature, subservient. Um, likewise, the Greeks, women weren't allowed to have educations. Women weren't allowed to have positions of power or authority. Yes, there were noble women who were more respectable, and therefore who it was right to marry, and some of them, as we see in Greek mythology, um, and in various Greek writing, could be very intelligent, could be very capable, could be deserving of respect. You know, you've got writers like Sappho, you know, women writers writing about the woman's experience, um, as we've seen in the, the textbook today. Um, but this is abnormal. This is the exception, not the rule. And while Greece is sort of becoming more attentive to women's experience, more attentive to, you know, the, the potential that women have as a functioning member of society and not merely as, like, something possessed, 
Um, it's it's slow. It's taking a while. The default state in the ancient world is that women are subservient to men absolutely. They are basically just a couple of levels above the level of, per, of possession. Um, but things are changing. Um, and things are changing towards the perspective that we have, where women are seen as a valuable contributing member of society. Like, if you read Homer's The Odyssey, you will not see Penelope being just a possession. She is held up as though she is on par with Odysseus. She is smart, she is capable, she knows how to manage the household, um, and she knows how to sort of extricate herself from a tricky political situation. Um, as much as she spends a lot of that book just going off her room to have a good cry, Homer would have seen this as part of her strategy, part of her plan. Women are not completely useless in this world, and the Greeks are kind of attentive to that. He, the early Greeks frequently see women as dangerous, tempting, seductive, um, but increasingly that's not a bad thing, as the Greeks understand it. Careful, intelligent women can get their way if they plot and scheme and use their cunning. But that, of course, is another conversation for another day. Um, suffice it to say, for our purposes, this is normal as far as the Greeks are concerned. They are not making some radical statement about, you know, women should be put in their place, but they're also not making a radical statement that women should be liberated. This is just society as they understand it. Flute girls are to be slept with because they're attractive and it is convenient for the menfolk who are hanging around. This is not rape. This is guest right. This is how what you do with hospitality. And if the girls enjoy it, even better. Um, but if they are going to protest, that's considered to be disloyalty. Um, not some sort of personal sense of preservation. Um, messed up? Yes. Are we going to read it anyway? Yes, because in order to understand how love has transformed and how much of this really is as vicious and horrible as it is, we have to go through the whole business. Um, now, on that note, when it comes to sexuality, obviously there are more dimensions here. We do also need to talk about Greek pederasty and homosexuality. But we're going to save that for when we run into Pausanias, because Pausanias is all about the pederasts. Um, and we have a lot to unpack in his particular speech. Suffice it to say, at least going into this dialogue, going into all the speeches, um, we are looking at a society that views love as an important relationship, but not necessarily as the defining relationship between men and their wives. Um, Households are governed according to convenience and economic necessity. Men marry women in order to make good alliances and good friends who will then enjoy a bond of love. The fact of the matter is, you will not love your wife, but you probably will love your wife's father or your wife's, um, your wife's brother or whatever the case may be. That's the relationship that you're really going to invest your time and effort in. Um, so you'll notice that Pausanias even stresses that m love between men and women is virtually impossible. It's not something that is practiced because women are so much inferior to men, because they have no education, because they do not pr participate in society. Um, in both ancient Greece and ancient Israel, it was most likely the case that women just did not get seen outside of the house. Um, they, their entire sphere was in the realm of the, their husband's household. And as you can see here in the symposium, in ancient Greece it's probably even more severe. 
Um, in all likelihood, if you had guests over, you probably wouldn't have your wife out very often, except to sort of greet and operate as host. Um, largely because you didn't want an adulterous relationship. And if you're sitting there thinking, well, why is there all this stress on adultery when you've got this, you know, relationship that basically nobody cares about their wives? Like, who cares? Why not sleep with each other? The key here is just as, you know, these marriage relationships are an economic bond, so is the production of children really important here. Um, you need to have a son with your legitimate wife in order to guarantee that your estate and therefore your promises are going to be kept for generations to come. In order to have value, you have to be able to promise your allies that you're going to continue to be valuable to them. And that means having sons and daughters that will then be important political you know, components in discussions to come. So if, in fact, your wife is stripping somebody else on the side, that means that it is not your bloodline that is being carried on to the next generation. And in fact, your wife is going to be, you know, secretly making alliances with possibly your enemies or your adversaries, your rivals. Um, that's bad. Like, in the medieval world especially, when you do have these kings and queens running the show, if the queen is sleeping with somebody other than the king, that is not just considered adultery, that is considered treason. Um, and, like, they are almost guaranteed to get their head cut off. Um, in the ancient Greek world, it's very similar. The reason why you let your concubines, you know, sleep with whoever you want, or you let the flute girls sleep with your guests, but you keep your wife protected and safe is because you do not want anyone interfering with your lineage. There is no forgiveness for a wife who is unfaithful. Although, as we talked about, there is tons of forgiveness for husbands who are unfaithful. Um, the double standard is not subtle here. Um, so, again, you do not... like The reason why adultery is so strongly prohibited is because it, it, it does throw a wrench into this whole economic situation. As a consequence, you could make the argue, argument that the thou shalt not commit adultery commandment in the Old Testament does lose some of its force in contemporary society. Um, I don't think it loses all of its force. I think, again, because of the emphasis that is placed on you know men and women becoming one flesh throughout the text, that the relationship talked about in the Old Testament is rather more rigorously how do I put it, love-related than the relationship between a Greek man and wife. Like, that is one of the key differences there. Um, but all the same, you know, it does mean something different than it used to. Um, it has a different sort of force, a different emphasis, now that the economic concerns of one's household are not tied to who you choose to marry. Um, your standing or falling in society no longer depends on, you know, the wife you choose, and therefore the, the obligations there are a bit different. Um, but it's complicated. Like, that's part of what we're doing in this class, is recognizing these historical contingencies. Um, we need to recognize that what Plato is talking about here as love is something very, very different from what we are talking about in our own time, largely because the cultural circumstances are so very different. What a husband and wife looks like, what a lover and beloved look like, what a love relationship looks like, what sex means is totally different. 
due to the fact that we have birth control, due to the fact that we, you know, base one's economic success on one's personal job, which has nothing to do with owning land, um, based on a wide variety of factors. The world is a completely different place than it was in ancient Greece, um, which is why, again, we should be hesitant to judge their cultural perspectives while also not excusing them. Um, but also we need to sort of fit ourselves into that mindset in order to understand what love is insofar as Plato is describing and talking about what he observes in his culture and also how he's moving away from that, how he's changing that perspective, changing that discussion. The great thing about the symposium is that it brings up both traditional and non-traditional perspectives on love. Um, like Agathon is almost rigorously traditional in the way that he's talking about love. Um, he is presenting love as being this sort of bearer of all virtues and therefore being restricted from certain relationships like men and women because women cannot possess virtue in the same way that men can. That's just an assumption of his. He's not making a like wildly controversial opinion. He's just stating what basically everybody already knows. By contrast, where there are radical perspectives and opinions typically come later in the dialogue. We see a little bit with Aristophanes. Maybe we should be a little suspicious of Pausanias for having his own sort of intentions in mind. But it's going to be Socrates and Alcibiades especially that are going to throw the wrench uh, into the, the sort of traditional Greek understanding of what love is all about. Um, so let's start looking at these speeches and sort of dissecting both what they're saying about Greek culture and how much of Greek culture they're taking away from them, like what assumptions each of the speakers is making, as well as what the speech speakers are actually saying to sort of change and slant the perspective of love. Um, and obviously we start with Phaedrus. Uh, but before we get into Phaedrus's speech, I do want to sort of emphasize the, the discussion as it sort of brings us to the point of Phaedrus's speech. Like, Eryximachus has apparently been talking to Phaedrus before the party even started, and Phaedrus complained that nobody ever sings encomiums about love. Um, now, an encomium is just, like, a poem of praise, and in this case it's more prosy, obviously, like nobody is, you know, lapsing into elaborate prose or elaborate poetry here. Um, so basically we're just saying, okay, let's all go around the table and talk about how awesome love is. Talk, like, praise love to the skies. Um, so this is a suggestion of Phaedrus, and Eryximachus is the one who presents it to us. Like, again, we are getting it second and third hand. Um, again, there's a distance between us and Phaedrus's initial suggestion that we should talk about love. Um, but Eryximachus also charges Phaedrus to be the first to discuss. Um, so we're going to go around the room, left to right, and whatever the shape is, horseshoe, clockwise, however you want to do it. Um, Actually, I think it would be counterclockwise in this case, but it's kind of hard to say. Chances are Agathon is positioned at the far end of the table because he is going to be served last. Like, he's at the, at the couch furthest from the kitchen. Um, and as a consequence, like, he is in the position of highest honor, and the people sitting near him are also in positions of highest honor. So we're also kind of quietly moving from most, or from least honored people and least honored guests to most honored guests. Um, culminating, of course, with Socrates, who for some reason everybody is thrilled to see. Um, this might be a little historical revisionism on Plato's part, but we can talk about that next time when we get into Socrates and his sort of legacy. Um, but we start with Phaedrus. 
Um, and notably, Phaedrus is, this is not the first time we've seen Phaedrus, or maybe it's not the last time we've seen Phaedrus. Um, Socrates actually has a dialogue, or Plato has a dialogue called the Phaedrus, where Socrates and Phaedrus talk. Um, and they talk specifically about beauty. Um, Phaedrus is supposedly the sophist expert on the subject of beauty. Um, which means that we have to have another sort of historical digression. What are sophists? What is, what is going on here? Why is everybody talking in these learned ways um, about things like love? Um, well, in a manner of speaking, ancient Athens was a rigorously philosophical society. Um, and that's not to say that like everybody performs philosophy, but increasingly due to just the way that Athens is constructed and the sort of priorities of its sort of constitution, um, people are putting a high premium on being cultured, artistically literate, and to some degree philosophical. Um, the way that this kind of came about, um, the Greek city-states were all sort of the, their own independent entities. Um, all these sort of independent political entities, they shared a fairly common language, a fairly common set of beliefs, although there are differences from place to place, city to city. Um, but generally speaking, the Greeks are these sort of independent city-states, and the individual cities are the, the central, like, the central hubs of culture, wealth, um, political power, and so on and so forth. Um, now, these cities could vary wildly from city to city. So, like, Athens was constantly in this kind of rivalry with Sparta, and Sparta was this very aggressive, very militaristic society. Like, they even had, like, a eugenic state where, you know, if a baby was born with a deformation or it didn't, like, perform certain physical feats before a certain age, they would, like, kill it straight off. Because literally every man and woman born in, into the Athenian, no or the Spartan nobility was trained from, like, age seven on to be the strongest warrior they could. And that includes both men and women. The Athenians, on the other hand, rather than having this, like, strong military state, they very much emphasized individual expression. According to legend, Theseus, the founder of Athens, um, instituted this new government structure, democracy, where all of the, admittedly, only landed citizens of Athens um, would get together and decide the affairs of the city together. No king, no tyrant, no single voice to sort of drown out all other voices. Instead, all the Athenians would get together, discuss whatever was on the table, like maybe they were worried about being invaded and needed to raise an army, or maybe, you know, they were building some new public works project, like a temple or something, and they needed to raise funds for it. Or maybe, you know, some there's a plague that's sweeping through and they need to talk about quarantine procedures or something like that. All the men of the, uh, all the landed wealthy men of Athens would get together, talk over the subject, they'd have a vote, and by a simple majority, either it would pass or fail. And in this situation, this cultivated a kind of new emphasis on rhetoric, oratory, the ability to speak convincingly. Um, and as a consequence, Men who were, you know, powerful and wealthy wanted to raise up their sons so that they would also be very capable of getting their agendas across in the demos, in the democracy. Um, so there were all of a sudden this explosion of new teachers. Um, these 
you know, landed gentlemen would seek out the smartest, the wisest, the most, you know, silver-tongued people in Athens, hire them to teach their young men, their sons, and then when their sons grew up, hopefully they would be very equipped to go to the demos and persuade people to, over to their side. Um, so in a matter of a few generations, Athens began to very much emphasize its cultural accomplishments because being very literate, being very well-spoken meant you could convince people over to your side and get, you know, funding, get your agenda across, get what you want out of the demos. Um, Socrates and, like, a decent chunk of the people who are here at this party belong to different strata of this society. Phaedrus is in all likelihood a sophist, one of these teachers who will get paid to teach a young man how to be a good Athenian citizen. Um, Pausanias, he is older by contrast. He and Socrates are about the same age, and they are considerably older than Phaedrus, Agathon, and the other young men who are at this particular symposium. Um, he has probably been around the block. He may be a sophist in his own right, but he is very much the old guard, and his speech kind of reflects that. Um, Eryximachus is a doctor. He is part of the skilled class in Athens. Uh, but he is obviously, by being a noble, only practicing this skill sort of as a philosophical pastime of sorts. Uh, like, there is a skilled underclass, like blacksmiths and, you know, tradespeople of a wide variety. And they typically are not nobility. They typically do not own land. They are paid by landowners to, you know, ply their trade, build their ships, do whatever it is that they do. Maybe one day they'll be able to afford their own estates. They are, you know, very much Athens's middle class, but chances are they would not be invited to this particular high-class party. Um, Agathon is a playwright. Like, that's why it's so significant that he's won the tragedy the day before. He apparently performed his tragedy, he got his his actors and stuff to perform it, and everybody liked it so much that he won the competition and has now been given an award over his playwriting ability, which makes him very much sort of the toast of the town tonight. Socrates, however, is kind of in his own sort of position. Um, by his own light, Socrates considered himself a teacher, but not in the same sense that Phaedrus is, because Socrates doesn't get paid to teach. He just walks around and makes himself a nuisance. Um, but apparently everybody at this point in Athenian history does regard him as very wise, very respectable. They actually would want him to teach their children, and as a consequence, he has a significant distinction in Athenian society. Um, that may not hold up with what history actually teaches. Again, we'll talk about Socrates' legacy more in our next discussion when we actually get to his speech. Um, for now, suffice it to say that he's kind of both outsider and also insider. He is kind of less high class than most of the folks here. He was supposedly just a stonecutter, i.e. one of that middle class skilled professions. But at the same time, at this point, he's distinguished himself so much by his oratory, by his sort of philosophizing, um, that people eagerly welcome him into their house. The same way that you might, like, see a, you know, famous writer or famous artist or famous composer at a high-class party. He's not really one of us, but we love his work, and as a result, it's sort of a novelty to have him show up at one of these things. Um, so think of it in, the, in that sense. Socrates is the guest of honor because of his accomplishments, even if Agathon as host is really the one who we're supposed to be celebrating tonight. Um, 
So back to Phaedrus. Phaedrus is young, Phaedrus is attractive, Phaedrus is considered knowledgeable and a, a skilled teacher. And notice what he emphasizes in his speech on love. Um, notice that when he talks about love, the first thing that he starts with is myth. Um, this is a pretty typical move for the Athenians and for Greek society at large. Anytime that you're about to talk about what you know about some big philosophical concept, be it love or piety or whatever, typically everyone's going to start by reaching for a handy myth on the subject. Um, which is why I had you watch the video on, on Prometheus, uh, the extra mythology video for this particular lecture. Um, you need to have a kind of basis in Hesiod in order to understand what Paus what Phaedrus is doing here, as well as how Agathon and Pausanias refer to it. Like, there's actually some fairly, su um, fairly substantial, fairly significant kind of uh, interpretations of the myths um, that typically circulate around Greek society. Um, because the fact of the matter is, there's very divergent accounts on the subject of love. Um, Hesiod, the writer that um, Phaedrus is talking about here, wrote this foundational work called The Theogony. Um, it's one of the oldest accounts, like tellings of Greek myth, probably dates back to the 7th or 8th centuries BCE. Um, and in The Theogony, Hesiod narrates in pretty explicit, painstaking detail the coming to be of the universe, um, much like we saw with Genesis 1 to 3. Uh, but where Genesis emphasizes that there's one God who's in charge of the whole process and who is very deliberately and carefully crafting a good universe, Hesiod, by contrast, emphasizes the chaos um, at the foundation of the universe. And in fact, the first God, if we can call it that, who is, you know, who sort of emerges from the roiling insanity of the primordial universe is chaos. Um, there are four sort of primordial gods. Chaos is the first. Usually it's presented as Gaia as the second, but importantly, extra mythology sort of ditches Gaia and instead presents Eros, i.e. love, as the second. Um, but what I wanted to emphasize with the video and what Phaedrus very much emphasizes here is this idea of Eros as this primordial god. This god that existed before Zeus and the Olympic Pantheon and before Zeus's fathers and the pro the Titans. Like, love exists so far back in the mythological canon that, you know, he is more powerful, predates, is more sort of unknowable than all the rest of the gods. And that's an important thing to emphasize here. Uh, when Hesiod presents Eros as this primordial god, when he lists him in the, the like top four gods to exist, he is very much stressing that it is mysterious, it is unknowable, it is powerful in a way we do not understand or comprehend. It is something before remembered time. Like, you are probably familiar with the Olympian gods, like I'm, I bet you know who Zeus and Poseidon and Hera and Athena are, or at least you know some of them. Um, you get this sense that you have like gods who are specifically attributed to one thing or another. So like Zeus is the thunder god, Athena is the god of wisdom, Ares is the god of war, Apollo is the god of light, Poseidon is the god of the sea, so on and so forth. Um, you These sort of distinctions, these nomenclatures, rather than like Zeus is thunder, 
it is more along the lines of Zeus governs thunder. Like, he controls that domain, in a sense. Eros simultaneously is love and governs love, but is sort of ungovernable in a certain sense. Like, you're probably familiar with Aphrodite as the goddess of love in Greek society. Like, Pausanias even brings up Aphrodite in his next speech. Um, but importantly, where Aphrodite is sort of personified, like, is the person who does love, Eros is very much love itself. And when Hesiod sort of creates and imagines him in this way, we're definitely presented this idea that love doesn't think the way that people think. Like, Aphrodite you could have a conversation with, you could have an argument with her. She is, at the end of the day, rational in some sense. She is a person. Eros probably has qualities similar to personhood, but it's almost pre-personhood. There's something more sort of primordial, more natural, more sort of like tectonic forces of the universe about Eros than there is about Aphrodite. Aphrodite is love civilized. Eros, at least as Hesiod presents it, is love in its brute, like totally unknowable state. And Phaedrus gets at this here. Um, he emphasizes, the point is that he is venerated as a primordial god, as is proved by the fact that no layman and no poet either assigns love parents. Now this is kind of significant because love does get parents in some mythological traditions, and Phaedra seems to be just ignoring that, or he's not aware of them, or something like that. And also notable is that Socrates, like, one of the first things he's going to say when he starts his speech about love is that love does in fact have parents, and he names them. And it's rather significant which parents he chooses. Um, but Phaedrus is instead emphasizing that love is something unknowable, something powerful, something beyond human comprehension. Um, so Hesiod says that chaos came first, and then broad-breasted earth, and then love. Love as number three. And this agrees with most of the versions of Hesiod I've read. So extra mythology is probably moving off of a different... Uh, working off of a different source here, or ignoring it for their own purposes. Um, so, Phaedrus goes on that we are very much emphasizing love is primordial and unknowable, and therefore he's not going to praise love directly. Instead, he is going to talk about love as he sees it between people. And specifically, he's talking about the usefulness of it. So he says, I mean, the greatest benefit to my mind that a young man can come by in his youth is a virtuous lover. This is at the very top of page 11. So he sees love as being fundamentally beneficial. That as a young man, the best thing that could happen to you is you get a virtuous lover. And he emphasized a virtuous boyfriend is just as good for a lover too. Anyone who wants to live a good life needs to be guided throughout his life by someone which loves in part by something which love imparts more effectively than family ties can, or public office, or wealth, or anything else. Notice, importantly, that he's contrasting love with family ties or public office or wealth here. Love has some fairly complicated connections here, um, and you'll notice that Phaedrus does seem to be specifically emphasizing love between men, um, and the love between specifically a lover and his boyfriend. Um, we're kind of already into major Greek homosexuality circles here, so let's just talk about how these relationships worked. 
and then we'll see it sort of developed by Pausanias in the next section. Um, the two terms that are being used here, um, what the translation here is by Robin Waterfield. Um, in the original Greek, the term lover and boyfriend, as Robin Waterfield translates it, actually have some significance to what we're talking about here. Um, lover in the Greek refers to the term erastes, and beloved or boyfriend refers to the term um, eromenos. Now, eros is the name of the god here. So eros is both the name of the god and also the word, love. But specifically, as we talked about in our What is Love lecture, erotic love sexual love. Um, this is not to say that it's just lust, but love sort of that is inspired by initial physical attraction. It's, again, all wrapped up into one another. The Greeks would not necessarily distinguish the two. Um, in some certain circumstances they would, but in our, for our purposes we have to remember eros, erotic love, is something that is both sort of transcendent, mental, spiritual, as well as being physical and sexual in nature. Um, but these two ideas, erastes and eramenos, lover and boyfriend, as Robin Waterfield translates them, specifically refer to the two sides of a pederastic relationship, um, which was the most typical kind of homosexual relationship in ancient Greece. And one of the things that I really need to emphasize right here, right now, is that the Greeks did not see men and women as being homosexual or heterosexual. Or rather, some of them do. Like, you'll notice that Aristophanes specifically delineates that there are some men who are just by their very nature attracted to men, and there are some women who by their very nature are attracted to women, and there are some men who are attracted to women and some women who are attracted to men. Aristophanes does break it down into personal character, but this is actually fairly unusual, and Aristophanes is doing something fairly artistic when he does this. By contrast, Phaedrus, Pausanias, most of the writers who we're seeing here, and most writers in the Greek tradition, tend to conceive of, rather than, are you gay or are you straight, it is more in this dynamic of, are you erastes, the lover, or are you boyfriend, the beloved, um, eramenos? And this relationship has a definite give and take quality to it. Um, erastes as lover means that the lover is giving their affection to the boyfriend. And the boyfriend, as eramenos, as the beloved, is receiving those affections. This is the dynamic that Greek always sees. And it is not just insofar as, like, one person does the loving, the other person just receives it. This has an explicit sexual connotation as well. The lover pitches, the beloved catches. Um, in the dynamic of anal penetration, there is always an, a penetrator and a penetrated. Um, erastes is the penetrator, eramenos is the penetrated. The lover penetrates, the boyfriend is penetrated. Do you feel awkward enough? I feel awkward. Let's push forward. Um, importantly, though, this has multiple dynamics attached to it, though. It is not purely sexual. Um, in the relationship between Erastes and Eramenos, the lover and the boyfriend, the boyfriend is typically much younger and way more attractive. The lover, the Erastes, is typically much older and well-established in society. So, an Erastes will take an Eramenos, kind of like, you know, a, a mentor will take on a student, um, 
or you know like in medieval tradition where a lord will take on a squire um the idea here is that the the more powerful more knowledgeable more wise more wealthy erastes will take the aramanos under his wing in exchange for sexual favors from the boyfriend from the aramanos the erastes is going to give him stuff he's going to give him gifts he's going to give him wisdom he's going to like train him to be a proper greek man um, so it is not uncommon for, you know, a, a Greek nobleman to let his son hang out and be a Romanos to, you know, some other important lord, some important Rastes for his training in education. Um, and now you'll notice that different writers seem to be emphasizing different elements of this. Um, so Phaedrus is emphasizing instead that it seems to be skewing younger. Yes, there is definitely an older and a younger. Yes, there is a less attractive and a more attractive. Yes, there's this kind of mentorship relationship between the lover and the boyfriend. But notice that he emphasizes it, especially in terms of warfare. Like, when young men go to war, it's best if you have, you know, young men with their lovers because both of them will be careful, will be more courageous because they don't want to be ashamed in front of the, the beloved or in front of the lover. They want to prove themselves worthy of the attentions of the other. Um, and now again, this is... One of the things that we need to stress here is that this is not a reciprocal relationship. This is not an even-handed relationship. This is a this is a relationship with a power imbalance built into the structure, uh, which is very foreign to our understanding of love in our modern culture. We understand love as only being possible between equal parties, equal participants, people who can both offer something equal to the to the conversation. And to the Greeks, they understand it in a similar way. The boyfriend is attractive. That's what they bring to the table. The Erastes, the lover, has lots of, sw of stuff and wisdom and advice. That's what he brings to the table. The Erastes, it's okay if he's ugly because he's bringing something else. The boyfriend, it's okay that he's dumb. He's bringing something else. That's acceptable in Greek circles. So when Phaedrus is painting this picture, we have to imagine an army of young men and their older lovers marching side by side into combat, eager to prove the courage, the virtue, the, the capability, and the skill in arms to each of the other, other compatriots. Um, and there's even a note that Waterfield sort of stresses here that there was, in fact, a Theban army that did this at one point in time, and it apparently was super effective. Like, it, it really worked. What Phaedrus is describing is something that the Greeks would generally have agreed with. Um, this is not something radical or unusual. This is something that everybody would kind of assume. But notice, too, right here, even at the very first description of love, notice that the emphasis is not on the affection that one feels, like whether, you know, you are deeply in love or, you know, how overwhelming that love is, but rather what that love makes you do. Uh, the fact that you will want to feel proud before your boyfriend or before your lover, the fact that you will not want to feel shame, and how useful this is to the culture. Like, notice that that seems to be the perspective that Phaedrus is adopting here more than anything else. You know, he's emphasizing... Um, 
that we need to instill these these ideas of shame and pride into the young before they get too old, because that will make them better soldiers and better citizens. As he says further down on page 11, possession by love would infuse even utter cowards with courage and make them indistinguishable from those to whom bravery comes most easily. The effect that love has on lovers is exactly what Homer described when he talked about a god breathing might into some hero or other. Um, so what Phaedrus seems to be doing here is stressing not that, like, love is great, it makes me feel awesome, but rather love is great, it makes people better than they are. Love is attached to virtue, and virtue is attached to a sort of civic responsibility. The state, the city-state, will thrive due to love, is what Phaedrus is emphasizing. It is practical. It is useful. It is not just some fuzzy feeling that makes us feel good inside. This is something that the state desperately needs. And I want to stress this, because this is something we're going to see again and again and again this semester. This sort of recognition of the civic usefulness and the civic responsibilities that love fulfills. Like, even as far as, you know, Foucault was talking about in the 19th century, where he's stressing about how, like, the city, the state, the, they're trying to sort of govern and survey and control sexual relations in order to sort of serve the purpose of the state, keep the population and the useful population at a maximum. You see here, the Greeks are doing mo many of the same things. Foucault is not doing this in a vacuum. This is frequently how love and sexuality is discussed. Um... Even as early as, like, 500 BCE, we have people observing the usefulness of love, of sexuality. And I want to stress this because, again, our society very much sort of deprioritizes this. We are constantly told from all sides, in all of our art forms, in all of our poetry, in all of our sort of advertising and stuff, that love is something sacred and central, and it is the focus, the sort of, like, um, the sort of goal of our lives. Whereas, for Foucault, for Phaedrus, we see love in its instrumentality. What can it do to accomplish even greater things? What is love good for? And not love as something good in and of itself. Um, this is, again, part of the transition we need to make. We need to start seeing love as the ancient Greeks did, as a tool in their arsenal as something that does, you know, motivate us and something that we do kind of fall into, that something, a passion that can take, take us by surprise. But at the same time, it, the effects of it are useful, important for various accomplishments, for various goals that we want to put together. Love in and of itself may be, as Agathon stresses, incredibly powerful and incredibly good and the highest thing that we can aim to, or it can be, as Phaedrus emphasizes, something that is useful to the accomplishment of other ends. Um, now notice Phaedrus does qualify this. It's not just in terms of politics that he talks about love. Um, in addition to his talking about the, the myth that Hesiod presents, where love is you know, this primordial god, he also stresses three more myths here at the back half of his speech. Um, specifically, he talks about how people get rewarded for love. How the cosmic order of the universe, how the gods will specifically look well on people who are willing to sacrifice themselves for their love. Specifically pointing to the three cases of Alcestis, 
um, who is P.S. a woman and should definitely strike us as unusual in this case. Um, Orpheus, who is also unusual because he fails, and Achilles. Um, so let's look at these three examples. Phaedrus presents first Alcestis. The Greek world has been given sufficient proof of this, specifically that, you know, only lovers are prepared to sacrifice themselves, um, have been given sufficient proof of this by Peleus's daughter Alcestis, who was the only one prepared to die for her husband, even though his parents were alive. Thanks to her love, she was so much more loyal than his parents that she made them seem related to their son and name alone, and otherwise to come from a different family. Men and gods approved so much of this action of hers that although there have been many noble deeds and many performers of them, she alone... Uh, she is a very few of those these people have been given the privilege of having one soul come back up from Hades but they let hers come back because they were so impressed with what she'd done that's how highly even the gods value the dedication and courage of love and notice again what Phaedrus is emphasizing is not love in and of itself she loved him so much but rather her love caused her to perform in an especially virtuous way she was very courageous. She was very self-sacrificing. She was very dedicated. That's why love is valuable. Because it makes people virtuous. Because it makes them better than they are. Um, we also see Orpheus. Orpheus is willing to go all the way into Hades for the sake of love of Eurydice. And we also have Achilles. Achilles was very much in love with Patroclus. And notice that... Um, Phaedrus is even trying to fit the relationship between Achilles and Patroclus, which isn't nearly this obvious in Homer, into the typical pederastic relationship, where Achilles was apparently the beloved, younger, more attractive, even though he was apparently more powerful and came from a nobler family, while Patroclus should, in theory, be the Erastes, even though all the indications in Homer were that they were actually much closer in age, and therefore this sort of predates the pederastic relationship in some way. Um, but notice that all three of these also, in addition to being examples of self-sacrificing love rewarded in one way or another, or in the case of Orpheus, punished because it was insufficient, um, notice that all three of them sort of contradict Phaedrus's original thesis. On the one hand, Alcestis is a woman. Like, as many of the, the uh, speakers later in the dialogue are going to emphasize, women don't typically make good lovers. Um, women are typically recognized as being outside of the love relationship. But apparently in this case, this exceptional case, this woman really did love men and uh, love her husband in a way that was transcendent, in a way that was powerful, in a way that reflected a sort of intelligence and seriousness and virtue that most of the Greeks would not be willing to attribute to women. Um, so notice the Phaedrus kind of hurts his own argument here. Um, first he's talking about, you know, dedication and young men falling in love with their Erastes, but at the same time, his first example is actually of a woman falling in love with someone, and therefore being virtuous. This will also be significant later because Socrates is going to have a particularly intelligent woman educate him on the subject of love. So, once again, as much as I've said all that about the Greeks and seeing love as being sort of restricted, especially in this dialogue between men and men, notice that there are some very keen examples in this dialogue of women who are actually standing out as good examples of, you know, people who can do love. I, I would even go so far as to say lovers, um, because they seem to fill that role, but the Greeks would definitely sort of, like, be shocked at the use of that term. Um, 
the Greeks, remember, erastes, lover, specifically refers to the person doing the penetrating, um, the person who is giving both one's sexuality and favors, like um, wisdom, intelligence, and so on and so forth. To the Greeks, that should not be possible. Like, it can't be physically possible. Women do not have the equipment necessary to perform anal penetration. But also, it should not be possible in the sense that women shouldn't have wisdom and intelligence and, you know, material wealth and all of these things to offer to a man. And yet, already Plato is sort of poking at this. And I think he's doing it intentionally. I think Plato is making a more feminist account of love than would have been normal in Greece at this time. Though again, there's a lot of potential ways that we could take this. Um, again, there are so many different voices here that Plato is sort of playing between that it's very hard to get at what Plato himself is actually saying here. Um, but let's move on, because we're already running short of time and we've still got a whole bunch of people to talk about. Um, our next speech is from Pausanias, who as we mentioned, he is one of the older folks here at the symposium. Um, he would definitely fit the logical role of an Erastes, even though Phaedrus is probably more transitional. Like, he's probably in his 20s or 30s, and could therefore be either an older Eramanos or a younger Erastes at this point. Pausanias is definitely older. Uh, Pausanias has also had a long-standing relationship with Agathon, um, which is also striking for our purposes. Like, this is something that the Greeks at the time would definitely have known. It's something that we only know because, fortunately, there are a couple of other texts out there that mention Pausanias and his relationship with Agathon. Um, and notice, too, here, uh, later in the text, um, I believe Aristophanes even points to that relationship. Like, he even, you know, makes a hedge later on in his speech that he wasn't actually making fun of Pausanias and Agathon. But that's telling in a couple of ways. Um, on the one hand, we should, we should note here that both Pausanias and Agathon are in the room, and Pausanias is probably presenting his love speech with an eye towards Agathon, like specifically looking at him from time to time, or maybe like making a couple of secret glances. Like this is not a secret. Everybody knows that Pausanias and Agathon have been together, and what's more, that Pausanias and Agathon have been together for a while. This is the key. Because typically, pederastic relationships in Greek society didn't last for very long. Um, they usually kind of came and went. Like, you bestowed your gifts on a, on a young man, and then he grew out of it, and then he sort of, like, lost interest and, and didn't appreciate what you had to offer, and so he went and did something else. Or alternatively, you know, he grew out of his good looks, and the Erastes no longer wants him around. So typically, the Erastes will pick up some new young man to dote on, and the boyfriend will pick up you know, some other Erastes, or sort of grow into his own inheritance and become an Erastes in his own right. Um, Pausanias and Agathon, however, have been hanging out together for several years at this point, and this is abnormal. And I imagine um, that Pausanias is getting some side-eye as a consequence. Um, Pausanias doesn't seem to be behaving the way a proper Erastes should. And you can notice from his speech that it might actually be kind of embarrassing for both Pausanias and for everybody else in the room. Um, Pausanias has an agenda in his speech. And while I'm not going to like dwell on it a lot, like I'm not going to do the literature professor thing where I'm like, here, look at this detail and that detail. Like instead, what I want to sort of emphasize more often than not is we should not necessarily trust 
at face value everything that he has to say here. Um, so you'll notice that Pausanias seems, uh, he starts off much the same way that Phaedrus does. Let's talk about myth. Um, and instead of going to Hesiod, he actually points out that there's this really interesting um, sort of discontinuity in the mythic tradition. Like, we talked about Hesiod and how he presents uh, Eros, um, but what we didn't talk about is how Hesiod presents Aphrodite. Um, later on in the Theogony, like after Gaia and Uranus are, are hanging around, um, we get this whole long story about how like Gaia gave birth to the Titans, and the Titans were like the, the chosen sons, but she also gave birth to a couple of monsters, and her husband Uranus didn't like them, so he like, locked them up, and Gaia tricks, you know, she, she sort of gets in with her, her Titan sons and, and makes this sort of plot to, you know, dethrone, depose Uranus and bring back her, her uglier children. Um, so Kronos, the head of the Titans, takes the sickle and he castrates Uranus and Uranus flees off into the sky. And when Kronos castrates Uranus, Uranus's junk drops off into the ocean and apparently that's enough to make babies happen. And Aphrodite comes emerging out of the ocean on a bed of sea foam. So Aphrodite has a very unusual origin story in Hesiod. She predates all of the other Olympian gods, according to this story. Like, Zeus hasn't been born when this goes down. Um, or if she comes out of the ocean after Zeus has been born, it's still, like, her origin, her conception occurred long before. It also sets her apart because she, like Eros, is primordial in some sense. She is not the product of sex in its normal form. Like, yes, there are sexual organs involved, and it seems that this seems to be like some kind of copulation or something near to it. Like, there are actually a lot of stories in mythology about junk getting cut off and that being enough to cause babies. Um, mythology is occasionally really weird and super sexual. Um, Aphrodite is one of these stories. So Aphrodite that Pausanias is talking about here, he refers to this story. This is celestial Aphrodite. Like the literal word here is Uranus Aphrodite. Um, this is the story that he is referring to. But he also notes that this isn't the st only story out there. Homer, who was also writing at roughly the same time as Hesiod does, points out in his Homeric hymn to Aphrodite, as well as in the Iliad, that Aphrodite is actually the daughter of Zeus. So we have two different understandings of the way that Aphrodite came to be. And in ancient Greece, this was kind of normal. Like, there are a bunch of different colliding mythic traditions happening around here, and many of them are localized to certain specific areas. You're not going to get the same story twice in many cases, and in many cases you're going to have conflicting views on the same story. It's why it's such a pain to try and like tie all these ideas together. Um, but, at least at this point in history, in the classical period, in classical Athens, in the, the peak of its golden age, Athens was very aware of the conflicts between its traditions, and frequently sort of used the various traditions to sort of emphasize certain points that they wanted to talk about. This became a talking point, in short. Understanding that there were two different traditions of both the creation of Eros, i.e. as the child of Aphrodite in Homer, or as the sort of cosmic force in Hesiod, allowed them to talk about love in different ways. 
So Pausanias is synthesizing here. He is performing a fairly sophisticated interpretation of these two different divergent mythic traditions. On the one hand, he has the love that Hesiod describes, celestial love, and celestial Aphrodite, who came from you know this strange and unusual form of, of procreation. And on the other hand, he has what he calls common, or like, um, I think the, the term is like, for all people, um, Aphrodite who seems to come from the Homeric tradition. And in this case, she is just one of the many kids of Zeus and, and Hera, or Zeus and one of his other wives, and Eros is her child. This is the Eros that you usually envision with like the little baby body and the wings and the, the, the bow and arrow, uh, like the, what uh, the Romans will call Cupid. Um, Eros kind of exists in these two forms in tension, and Pausanias emphasizes one of them is good, and one of them is bad. So common love, the love practiced between the undiscerning, the love that is sort of brought about by common Aphrodite and by common, you know, cherub baby Eros, is kind of gross. Um, it's purely physical in nature. It doesn't aspire to anything more than physical attraction. Um, it is also between people who are ne not necessarily appropriate for each other. Like, it will not be between, you know, older noble men who practice virtue and younger men who are attractive and can have virtue instilled in them. But rather, it could be between men and women. Gross. Um, or men and boys who are too young, like they don't have their facial hair in, also gross, um, or between like men of the wrong sort of age comparison. Notice that Pausanias is very judgmental um, in his description of love. But at the same time, he is sort of pointing out that it is complicated. And in fact, like, that's one of the things that he very much emphasizes here, that it is complicated, that the rules surrounding what is good and bad love are not straightforward, as he puts it on page 17. A wrong relationship is one which involves the immoral gratification of a bad man, and a good relationship is one which involves the morally sound gratification of a good man. But that's it. Like, only in certain situations, only in certain relationships, is love truly good? Is it at its best? Is it perfect? Most of the time, between most people, the common sort of people, love is just kind of gross and base and vulgar. Um, but notice, too, the subject of gratification. Pausanias seems really, really interested in this idea of gratification. Um, and specifically, he's emphasizing that like there are certain situations that it's okay to gratify your lover, to allow your lover to have your way with you, um, despite what other people may say. And in fact, the lines that he's drawing here are sort of very much sort of emphasizing that there are good ways to gratify lovers and there are bad ways to gratify lovers. Um, now, the term here in Greek is charizomai, um, which can mean to give favors to, to gratify, as we see here. It certainly seems to have a sexual connotation here, but it is important to notice that it is a giving relationship, which, as we talked about in the relationship between Erastes and Eramenos, it's supposed to be one-sided. Erastes gives to Eramenos. Now, there are two possibilities here as far as Pausanias' speech seems to be concerned. Notice he's very defensive about this Keridzomai 
thing, this gratifying a lover. Like, he specifically points out around uh, paragraph 182a, there are people who go so far as to maintain that it's disgusting to gratify a lover, a slur for which these common lovers are responsible. Notice the language here. To gratify a lover. Again, that's a rastes there. So, meaning, it, Pausanias is saying it's okay in certain situations for the Aramanos to give to the Erastes. He's reversing the conventional pederastic relationship. And this would have been very sketchy to the Greeks. And reading between the lines here, it seems pretty clear that what Pausanias is saying is that his relationship with Agathon occasionally reverses the sexual role play here. Agathon gives and Pausanias catches. Agathon is, in some sense, the Erastes to Pausanias's Eromenos, even though, from a social perspective, they should absolutely be going the other way. Pausanias is, to put, not to put too fine a point on it, getting it up the ass. And the Greeks in this company probably would have been really uncomfortable about this. It is largely considered that Pausanias, as a lover, should be bestowing on Agathon. But now that Agathon is actually really, you know, coming up in the world, he just won his first tragedy, he probably should be finding his own Eromenos to attach himself to. So both Pausanias and Agathon may be violating the typical Greek conventions of love here. And Pausanias, at least, seems to be acting a little childish about this. And I say that very deliberately. Remember, Eromenos is, is attached to youth. If Pausanias is getting it up the butt, the Greeks would have seen this as being womanly or childish. He would have been unfit for, you know, what he is getting done. He should have grown out of this by now, is in short what they would think. They would be like, come on, Pausanias, seriously? Like, you're still letting... Like, he's younger than you, dude. Like, what are you doing? What do you think you're doing over here? This is not appropriate for you. You should absolutely be finding some other Aramanos to stick it to and give your favors to him. Why are you talking about Karizomai as though you should be the recipient? Like, that's just weird and wrong. So it's important to notice this. It's also important to notice that Plato doesn't judge here. Like, remember, Plato is giving us a whole picture of the love relationship. And notice that both Phaedrus and Pausanias have already sort of fallen at the same time as they're sort of presenting a conventional argument. Like, we've got Phaedrus talking about these, these relationships between Erastes and Romanos and sort of talking about the virtues that are inherent in them. Pausanias is sort of dividing good and bad love, noble love versus sort of common or vulgar love. Both of these would have been widely acceptable. But this is just like a typical conversation with someone who you suspect has biases. Both Phaedrus and Pausanias seem to be bringing the conversation in a direction they want it to go. They have an agenda, Pausanias especially. Pausanias seems to be justifying his actions publicly, and everyone's probably pretty uncomfortable about it and can see through the lines. But Plato is probably also okay with this. He is presenting love in all its weird and strange forms, even the ones that would have been kind of gross to the ancient Greeks. He is willing to consider Pausanias's position and say, yeah, I guess that could also be love, weird as it might be. 
But we're already running very short on time, and I do want to get through at least Riximachus and Aristophanes before we move to our second discussion. So let's talk about those two at the very least, and maybe we'll save Agathon for our discussion with Alcibiades and, and Socrates as well. Um, Eryximachus is especially interesting, I think, for our contemporary culture, because I think that he would agree with a lot of contemporary scholars, in a sense. You'll notice that Eryximachus, he agrees with Pausanias that there is like good and bad love, uh, but he's specifically emphasizing not the relationships between human beings, but rather love as it exists in the physical world, just at large. Um, and he's not alone in this. There was, there was at least one great Greek philosopher long before Socrates who argued that love was the fundamental sort of attractive force uniting the entire world together. Um, the Greeks did not distinguish between human emotions and the forces that govern physics. Um, so if they in fact said, you know, like, I drop a, a, a ball and it hits the earth, they would have understood it in terms of the ball loves the earth and wants to be close to it. That force of attraction would be the same between humans, i.e. love, and between objects, like gravity. Um, so Eryximachus very much presents it in that sense. He's talking about the body of every creature is pervaded by love. Like, biology has love as one of its governing forces. Um, medicine is all about, you know, you gratify the good lover, i.e. health, while you refrain from gratifying the bad lover, i.e. disease. Notice how he's using Pausanias' language and Pausanias' forms to characterize the physical world in this sort of quasi-scientific, quasi-medical way. He is a learned man who is studying, you know, a variety of what um, the Greeks would call, like, technical skills. Um, ways of understanding the world. It would be very much adjacent to philosophy, and he's kind of very much doing philosophy here, especially, you know, when you read Aristotle and the physics, like, this is very similar. Um, but at the same time, like, he is very much concerned with the mundane world rather than the ideal one, the spiritual one that, that Plato is sort of dealing with more often than not. Um, so Eryximachus, I suspect he could absolutely hang out in the same room with somebody like Freud or any number of psychologists who see love as a chemical process, and they would get along. Like, yes, they'd be a little, you know, shy of Eryximachus's sort of assumption that love is the same as gravity or love is the same as, like, forces that bind cells together. Um, but at the same time, their perspective, I suspect, is very similar. They see love in terms of a physical process. They see love as purely an attractive force. Notice that Eryximachus never talks about human love the same way that Phaedrus does, where it like raises people up to be virtuous, or even the way that Pausanias does, where he's talking about the dynamics within a given relationship. All three of these speeches have had a radically different perspective. Phaedrus from the perspective of myth and from the perspective of the politics, Pausanias from the personal perspective, like his own biases and sort of his own kind of dissection of the way that human relationships on a human relationship stance are supposed to work, and Eryximachus comes at it from a completely new perspective, like medicine. He's going to talk about it as though it's some hermetically healed, sealed scientific subject. He's going to put on his gloves and talk about how you can watch love work in a dissected human body or something. That's what we're dealing with here. Uh, but we definitely need to talk about Aristophanes, because this is one of the most famous speeches in this dialogue. Like, this and Socrates are the two big ones. 
Um, Aristophanes, rather than giving us a speech the way that the others have given us a speech, just makes up a myth on the spot. Um, and this is significant. One, because Aristophanes, like Agathon, is a playwright. Um, Aristophanes wrote comedies, uh, which is why, like, he, Eryximachus is, like, warning him, like, I don't, I want you, this to be a serious discussion about love and not just, you know, some satire or a comedy. But at the same time, we're kind of forced to wonder, is this just satire? Is this just comedy? Is Aristophanes just playing a game with us? You can totally read his speech either way as a serious sort of mythic, uh, interpretation and, and sort of mythic retelling or as a sort of comedy, as a sort of satire on how human beings interact with one another. There are certainly elements of both. Um, what's more, notice that he defends himself against the charge. He's like, dude, I'm not actually just making fun of Pausanias and Agathon, even though his worldview actually makes a space for understanding the, quote, perversion that Pausanias and Agathon are engaged in. Um, instead, he's just going nuts. He's having a flight of fancy. And notice, too, that this is after his attack of the hiccups. Like, Aristophanes should have gone before Eryximachus and doesn't because Eryximachus, like, notices that Aristophanes is having a hiccup attack. And Eryximachus, like, even prescribes a couple of hiccup cures for Aristophanes, which apparently do clear it up. Like, the minute he tries to hold in his sneeze, he's, like, good to go. Um, that's all it takes, apparently. Um, notice the relationship there. Where Eryximachus is incredibly mundane, incredibly rooted in physical science, Aristophanes is instead totally a flight of fancy, absolutely in the clouds, so to speak. Um, there's something very striking about the contrast between the two and the fact that they're sort of juxtaposed. Should we, have, should we understand Aristophanes as being the natural conclusion of Phaedrus and Pausanias, and then Eryximachus to be taking in a new direction, like as though Eryximachus was supposed to come afterwards? Or is the juxtaposition, is Eryximachus going first, actually more appropriate? It's interesting to sort of investigate, but unfortunately we don't have the time to do that. So instead, let's go over the major points here. According to Aristophanes, once upon a time, human beings were basically giant brown things with four arms and four legs and two sets of genitalia. And they apparently just like rolled around all over the place and were super strong and were super powerful and were in fact so strong and so powerful that they actually attacked the gods. And Aristophanes points to a certain myth and he's like, remember that myth? Yeah, that was actually about this. Um... Now, we should emphasize from the outset that the Athenians are actually pretty comfortable making up myths. Um, like, I know that we who understand religion as being sort of grounded in sacred texts and you will never mess with the text, the Greeks did not view their religion that way. Like, Hesiod and Homer, they recognized. They were in conflict. They frequently contradicted one another. And they look for synthesis. But they'll even go a step further and make up myths on the spot. Uh, Plato does this often. Most of his dialogues include a myth that is made up on the spot. And in this one, it is Aristophanes' myth that largely fills that role, if we can be assumed to sort of compare them. But like in The Republic, he's got this whole myth at the end of it that's all about the afterlife. In The Phaedo, the same deal, another afterlife myth. Like, he frequently will just make up a myth that sounds similar to the mythic traditions that exist, maybe even use some of the same characters or some of the same entities, but will very much exist to sort of emphasize what he wants to emphasize, to sort of drive home the virtue that he wants to drive home. Plato knows that most of the people in this, in this culture 
when they're asked a major philosophical question, will point to a myth for an answer. Plato does it the other way around. He answers the question and then makes up a myth to back up what he wants to say. So Aristophanes seems perfectly comfortable totally upending the story of human creation in, the Hes in Hesiod's Theogony and Works and Days. He is totally comfortable making up a myth on the spot, and everybody's cool with this. It seems to be an act not of impiety, but rather of creativity in the same way that a play is. Um, so, we've got these ball humans. They attack the gods. The gods punish them by splitting them in half. And now they're made so they stand upright on two legs and with two arms, and... Zeus even threatens that if they get uppity again, they're going to split them in half again, and then they're going to just be hopping around on one leg. Um, but fortunately, that does not happen. Um, they are miserable in this state because they have been separated from the other person who makes them whole. And as a consequence, they, like, apparently just, like, slam their bodies into each other, trying to, like, re-achieve that perfection, that wholeness, until finally Zeus, like, moves their junk around, so now they face forward, and people can actually have sex with each other, and thus, that is the closest that people get to achieving their wholeness, um, going back to their primordial state as, like, ball people. Um, Aristophanes also explicitly notes that there are three genders in this society when they are ball people. There are the males, which apparently have something to do with the sun, um, and when they are split apart, you end up with uh, homosexual pederastic men, two men who want to live together, which of course includes Agathon and Pausanias, which is why he says, you know, this would justify Agathon and Pausanias. I'm not actually trying to satirize them here. Um, he also stresses that there are some of these ball people who are women, and those women become lesbians, uh, they have a homosexual attachment to one another. Um, and then there are the androgenes, who are both, like, they're half men, half women when they're in the ball state, and then they have make heterosexual couples when, when they are together. And notice that I do use the terms here. Like, the heterosexual-homosexual distinction is a recent development, as we've discussed. Only since the 19th century, homosexual was a diagnostic term for psychoanalysts to diagnose what they considered a mental illness. And then Typically, it was understood that like people committed sodomy, they performed a homosexual act, but they were not themselves homosexuals. Typically, the Greeks understand everybody as being bisexual. Like, men will sleep with both men and women. Women will sleep with both men and women. But when women sleep with women, there's no penetration, so it doesn't count as love in the context of the Erastes of Eromenos, and therefore it's not sex in any real sense of the, of the word, much as Sappho seems to argue that there are certain women and certain groups of women who do see things otherwise. Notice that Aristophanes tends to align more closely with our culture and our perspective. Aristophanes is suggesting there are people who are inclined to sleep with other people of the same gender. They are made this way, they are born this way, so to speak, because they used to be part of a whole that inclined in that direction. Um, now notice it is specific. Aristophanes is also suggesting a kind of soulmate philosophy here, where everybody has one person who they are appropriately matched to. And some people since Aristophanes have argued that like he is aware of the fact that you know, every with every successive generation, we get farther and farther away from the people who complete us, and therefore, like, the bonds that link soulmates together become looser. But honestly, he doesn't seem to be aware of that here. Like, he even stresses at one point that, like, today you can have people see, find their soulmates, the people that they are meant to be one whole with. 
Um, so he definitely seems to be fostering a kind of soulmate philosophy here. Like, you are meant to be with one other person, whether it's man, woman, or otherwise. Um, so his, his stress seems to very much align with our contemporary philosophy, and this very much is kind of a myth for our own time. But notice that this is very much a deviation from what everybody else so far has been talking about. Aristophanes is setting up a worldview that is totally out of sync with the one that Phaedrus came up with. Um, it's totally out of sync with, to some degree, the one that Pausanias came up with, even though Aristophanes is suggesting that Pausanias' relationship could fit into this scheme. Um, and it is definitely out of sync with the usual Greek attitudes. Um, the idea that there is one and only one person who you are meant to be with typically isn't the way that Greeks understand love. Um, but Aristophanes is a keen observer, and he includes it in his discussion. And Plato is writing this, and he too is very aware of the fact that some relationships seem to transcend mere physical attraction, or even love in the sense of like searching for virtue together. People do seem naturally inclined sometimes to just pair off and be together. Um, as Aristophanes puts it, if those people were approached by Hephaestus, they could ask him, just join us together, let us be one whole again. Um, in a strikingly similar way as what Genesis 1 talked about, where the man and woman will become one flesh. Um, it's interesting that Plato is entertaining all of these different perspectives, and that some of these perspectives will bring both true and false to us even now. Aristophanes sounds a lot like what we in the 21st century believe about love, whereas Phaedrus and Pausanias seem completely foreign to us. But it's not merely a set of different perspectives either. Notice that each of these thinkers is also kind of piggybacking off of the one who came before. You know, Pausanias agrees with Phaedrus's understanding of Hesiod, but he adds another layer to it. Eryximachus agrees with Pausanias's two kinds of love distinction, but he adds to it the entire physical realm. And Aristophanes admittedly is kind of flying in the dark here, doing something completely novel and different from everyone who's come before, but you can see elements of all those other philosophies here as well. Plato is playing a game with us, in a sense. He is building not just one, but many different philosophies of love, and they don't intermix in very clear, distinct ways. They sort of intermix. They have, take borrow elements of some and leave elements of others. They will, you know, combine and synthesize multiple philosophies or multiple philosophical perspectives while leaving other philosophies completely ignored. It's tricksy. Um, that's why this is such a rich text, both philosophically and even as a work of literature. Um, it's got a lot going on. And it just serves to drive home that same point, that love is complicated. That there are many different attitudes toward it, and, and not, no one of them necessarily distinguishes itself as being the right one, in a sense. Uh, but I'm already way over time, so we will talk about Agathon's speech, uh, we will talk about Socrates' speech at long last, and we will talk about our party crasher uh, next time in our next discussion. So finish the symposium for our next lecture, and we'll talk about the rest of it there.